afternoon. The panel, RNZ National, welcome, Kia Nice to have your company, Ed Amon and Dalini Baruch, with me this afternoon. Now, Chris Hipkins, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins, today said he did not think the government should be hiring lobbyists for communications work. Hipkins said the information revealed today by RNZ around government departments using lobbyists was not appropriate, quote-unquote, and indicated he'd be taking action in that space. This on the back of RNZ's uh, Guy and Espina, uh, part one of a series into political lobbying. Universities, government agencies and state-owned enterprises are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of public money on lobbying firms. And the documents show how lobbyists use their inside knowledge and personal context to try and get what their clients want. Some lobbyists paid uh, by us, the taxpayer, to do work for government agencies, says Espiner, and says that unlike most other developed countries, New Zealand's lobbying industry is unregulated. Now, one of several mentioned in the article is David Cormack from the Draper Cormack Group, who has done work for Pharmac. He has been a sometime panellist. But with us now is Julie Hagger, the CEO of Transparency International New Zealand. Julie, kia ora. Kia ora, Willis and kia ora to the panel. So very big, quite in-depth story here, more to come. Uh, Not the first time political lobbying has been raised, of course, but what do you take from this story today? I think um, it's raised some really big issues around the use of lobbyists by government agencies, for sure. Um, It's part of a broader problem, um, but the fundamental element is that uh, there should be a living, level playing field for stakeholders when there's public policy development or legislation. So that's, that's the, the why you shouldn't have um, uh, overdue influence of lobbyists in the New Zealand political system. Our, our political machinery is weak enough as it is in terms of getting public consultation and the public view through it. Uh, and, and, and the yeah, and the, and the problem with when the executive has greater power, when the ministers have greater power, it, it, as, as happens in our our government sort of structure, you you end up with a situation where the public voice is just is just really low. And recent uh, report by the OECD confirmed that when um, the, in a survey of New Zealanders, only 37 percent um, of people uh, thought that their, their their views on any public consultation would be adopted. Right, so here there is, unlike other countries, there is no lobbying register. If we had a register, what would it look like? Well, the ones in um, the ones overseas have uh, are usually have some level. They're toothless unless they've got some level of control. So, uh, the sort of equivalent of the attorney gen- attorney general has uh, holds the list, and it tends to be third party lobbyists. So those who are those who are um, contracted to lobby on behalf of others, oh. uh, and there's rules around it, and they can be they can be bre- can be breaches found, and they would lose their license presumably. Um, we don't have a whole lot of things. It's not just a lobby. We don't have a code of conduct for lobbyists amongst parliamentarians. We don't have a... Uh, it's not written into standing orders. Um, we don't have any kind of regulation of professional lobbyists in New Zealand. There's a range of things that we could do to improve hmm. the situation. Nalini, let's bring you in and, and you, your thoughts and your questions on this. Yeah, hi, Julia. And when I read that article, or a couple of articles on it before I arrived, it's sort of... I've come up with more questions than answers, to be honest, and... The minute you hear the word lobby, 
uh, lobbying, the sort of words that follow in my head are things like undue influence and spin doctoring and, you know, is it ethical or unethical um, to, to for a government department particularly or even an SOE to hire a lobbyist. But I'm Something I need to understand is this. Do we really understand what a lobbyist does? And is it that we have a poor understanding of what they do um, is the reason why those sort of words pop up in our heads? Yes, you're right. What overseas jurisdictions who have brought it, we've done a study of comparable jurisdictions and we're way behind a lot of the comparable countries. And... uh, and what people have is a definition of lobbyists. So it's what that will be applying. So usually, uh-huh. generally, it's third party, not your um, mum and dad, you know, going in and making a submission on something, or even a, a church faith, for example. Although it could be if you were constantly um, representing other a whole set of other organisations. So yeah, um, that's that sort of there is there is a, you can put a definition in. It, it can be done. Yeah. And- Sorry, and if I could add to that, is there a difference between a comms team and a lobbyist? You mean like a comms team from... Internal comms team doing the same work versus, say, a lobbyist having to do that Uh, for you. I'm not sure. I I don't know. I'd have to look back and uh, look at the other comparators. Thank you. Uh, my question is that the, our, our general understanding for the general public is always uh, from the movies or TV that uh, a lobbyist uh, is someone that is hired by an external private organization to influence legislation. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it intrigued me reading this article that the government departments and uh, state-owned enterprise organizations, they were lobbying um, the MPs. So uh, h- what is the situation in New Zealand? Do, do we have private enterprise also engaging in lobbying as, uh, at the same level as compared to the US? We do have a great number of private enterprises um, uh, engaging lobbyists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think it, it, I, I sort of see this problem as a bit of a subset of a larger problem. But the, and that's because uh, MPs are harder, to get, are harder to get to. And, the, and we're doing... The, making so many legislative changes in such a short time without the period for consultation that should be held, and some of them, a lot of them going through urgency, that it puts pressure on people to get to the person who they think is going to be the decision maker. Oh. And that, that, along with the problem that we don't have an upper house, and, and so the mm. ministers have much more power than... And, and the select committee in a single government, in a single party government, is, is, has less power. Um, that, in that sort of situation, you you are going to get the minister. They have to go to the minister. So people will pay money to get people who they think can go to the minister, can get to the minister or the minister's undersecretary, parliamentary secretary or someone close to the influence. And that's why they're looking at the profiles and trying to influence those people. How, um, how thin is the line between lobbying, a regular regulated lobbying, and just moving on to corruption? Because, you know, it's, what, what does transparency in New Zealand think of that idea that lobbying, what takes lobbying into corruption? Yeah, I mean, our definition is the misuse of entrusted power uh, for personal or political gain. 
Uh, and you can see in many situations it can move into it. We're not saying lobbying is bad. I mean, lobbying, lobbying mm. can bring into the debate you know, new ideas and mm. new facts and new opinions, which you may not have thought before. You can't okay. just have a group of parliamentarians sitting in a room having nobody talking to them, um, including no, you know, people who aren't informed. But, it, but it, the point is, I suppose, is just when that gets to the point of undue influence. Now, undue influence is a broad term, but, you, but it has been um, tested in places overseas, so you can test it, and that certainly should be worked into a code of um, conduct. On so, code. Julie, the, the issue here is really, isn't it, that uh, here in Aotearoa, our lobbyists are not regulated, there's no code of conduct, there's no lobbying register. Um, Hipkins said, Prime Minister Hip, Chris Hipkins said he was not ruling out more work in the future about making lobbying more transparent. So what would be the best move? What would be the, best, what would be the starting point uh, to change things here? I think they could, um, well, yeah, they, they could bring in a, a lobbyist code of conduct. Do you know what the, I think the best change would be for the citizens of New Zealand to demand of their MPs what their beliefs and transparency around lobbying is at this parliament, in this, in this um, political year, uh, to actually expect parliamentarians to take an ethical view of it? Because just applying one rule won't necessarily, people will try to get round it. So parliamentarians actually have to adopt and embrace the concept of ethical lobbying um, practice, and so do lobbyists. We haven't seen any of the lobbying, uh, we haven't seen any of the um, institutions you might expect come out and say, well, we absolutely embrace this, we should have more regulation, we should have a code, we, we have our own code, for example. Uh, I haven't seen too many examples can of that I, in can, New Julie, can I ask you a question before you go? Mm. Why are we an outlier in this? Well, I do think, again, that it comes back to that problem of the executive power and the fact that we haven't got a, too, too many breaks on that power of the, the ministers, that where the power shifts upwards to the ministers and the, exec, and the select committee, unless you're in a very good coalition government, aren't really able to pull that back. So I don't think there's enough demand at Parliament for that, um, as well as by the people. Well, it's very interesting to have you on, Julie, and uh, I'm sure that there'll be more across the week on this issue. For now, thank you. That's Julie Haggy, the CEO of Transparency International NZ. This is the issue. It's a very good read, worth it, on the RNZ site there. Uh, RNZ's Guy and Espen, he's uh, just uh, published part one of a series into political lobbying. 18 past four. By the way, I'm really loving your responses to your dream job. Um, I asked if anyone has a dream job. I thought no one would, no would reply. Many, many are coming through. So thank you for that, uh, that very, very soon. But the Opportunities Party top have announced a couple of interesting youth-related policies I thought worth raising. A young person's gold card of sorts. The Teal card will give fully funded health care to New, Zealand, New Zealanders under 30, including free GP visits, primary dental and mental health care, fully funded public transport. The other policy, a national civic service program. So a stronger sense of social cohesion amongst young Kiwis builds crucial life skills. That's what they say. So a universal savings boost with $5,000 dropped into every New Zealanders' bank account when they turn 18, provided... They go on an outward-bound-like course. I thought, hmm, that's an interesting um, idea, isn't it? So we thought we'd get acting CEO outward-bound Simon Granny on the program. Kia ora, Simon. Kia ora, Wallace. 
a national civic service program, not unlike Outward Bound, fair to roll it out at a national capacity? What did you make of this? Well, I think uh, a policy that on the surface, you know, it's only just come out, seems compassionate, focused on education and equity. If that's inspired in part by Outward Bound, then we must be doing something right. So uh, I'm, I'm pretty stoked with that. The idea is to build a stronger sense of social cohesion amongst young New Zealanders building crucial life skills. So Outward Bound doesn't pivot exclusively towards young people, of course, but you're very much involved in this idea, in this sphere, aren't you? Yeah, social cohesion um, is is a big national goal, and that's the goal of this policy. And um, you know, outward bound, uh, outward bound vision is, is better people, better communities, better world. Um, we we hope that we can influence you know a generation of of New Zealanders to come. Uh, I don't know if we could uh, deal with the upscaling of capacity to deal with every young person in New Zealand. That would be ambitious, but certainly um, they are thinking along the same lines that we are. And, and some of the things in that policy, um, like you know the growth of vol- you know and making volunteering something that that happens. Um, you know, I do wonder about uh, when it. it where the volunteering is entirely voluntary under this policy, it might be different. But, um, uh, you know, volunteering, uh, community service, which is part of an Outward Bound course, part of what we encourage people to take up once they leave an Outward Bound course, that's got really um, well-researched benefits, not just for society, obviously that too, but also for the, the person involved in the volunteering themselves in terms of well-being, engagement, yeah, lots of other dimensions. Uh, let's get, bring our panel, Ed. Okay, so five thousand dollars into every New Zealanders account under eighteen on one condition: they do an outward bound style course. Would you support it or uh, not? Uh, no, um, <laughs> I'll take the money, but um, I, I, I'm okay, just a big thumbs down for Ed. <laughs> I, I'll take the money, but I, I'm just worried with uh, with the consequences of like a compulsory course and uh, a money attached to it. I mean, uh, it, it is a bit. Uh, it feels like because we used to have compulsory uh, military uh, training for about two months several years ago in Pakistan as well, and several countries have a compulsory military training. So now this. This has a goodness of heart behind it, but it becomes is it is it a voluntary thing that one is doing or is it something is someone is doing for money and what's in it? I mean, if it's a civics course, what kind of civics course is it? What kind of education is going in there? So I am just worried about that. It just came out. So there might be more information. Okay, coming so out. you've got you're not sure. In fact, you, it's a big thumbs down. You take the money, I'll take the forget money. the course. Yeah. Stay there, Simon. What about you, Nalini? Oh, I'm just wondering if this is um, one of National's policies that's been um, repackaged slightly differently. Um, what I'm thinking is 5K. Well, so do, you, do, you, do you support it or not? I do support it, but I, I, so that's a yes. at the moment with a little sort of um, hesitation because I need some more information. And that is this 5K, is it supposed to be there to pay for outward bounds or whatever National Civic no, Service it's for Program? What, for, for what you want to do with it is to help set you up. Okay. So, if so it is, yes or no? If it's to build social cohesion, and I do believe that the young need a little bit more of that, um, why not build more social cohesion while they're still at school so that when they leave school, they have a more meaningful path to pursue? Do you want to respond to both of those issues there, Simon? 
Sure. Yeah. Um, civics education already is in the school curriculum, but it's optional. Uh, and civics education just in the classroom, I think, isn't nearly as effective as, as uh, civics education could be in a in a more uh, sort of holistic um, type of approach like like an Outward Bound course. And Outward Bound definitely does not have a monopoly on this. There are a lot of other people who yeah. are doing really good um, community service programs and, and other education programs. Spirit of adventure? Uh, they do some great stuff. I don't think that community service is part of a course of, of, in, hmm. with the Spirit of Adventure, but they probably encourage it afterwards. Uh, they, they run an awesome program. So but, um, I, it did, this program did remind me of the National Boot Camp type, um, Boot Camp for Young <laughs> Offenders. <laughs> and I think there's a difference. Uh, in, in my you know, shallow reading of it, I was reading a quote this morning uh, in the news in The Guardian, from the novelist Tommy Orange, and it has this in it. The quote is, Kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths, and we think the problem is that they're jumping. End of quote. Now, that's a metaphor, obviously, but it seems like that uh, if you focused on the fire, that's that's the young offenders boot camp kind of thing. Um, Sorry, focused on the jumping, but if you focus on the root cause, this policy seems to be focused on the root cause. It's broad, it's not just for young offenders, but it's probably in response to some of the media coverage around young offenders. Uh, and it seems to be a more compassionate approach than boot camp. Okay, so yeah. it almost boot camp like theirs, but someone says, I'm a bit disappointed in the panellist response. It's a great idea uh, from top. Uh, and also, Simon, I must raise this because there's been a bit of response regarding Outward Bound. What about those with a disability who are unable to take part? Mm. W- would they lose out? Uh, I don't know, Simon, if, whether or not Outward Bound at this stage has capacity for people with disabilities. Uh, we run a whole bunch of disability yeah. programs. In fact, just this year we've grown our disability program by an awful lot. So we uh. run programs for people of, of you know, really wide range of ages. You know, we've got uh, we run courses specifically for people with physical disabilities and intellectual disabilities. We run a course for people with Parkinson's. You know, we're we're yeah. we're in that space now, um, and I think we could do a great job. Again, not for the whole country, but um, you know, if, if we were able to be used as as an inspiration for this, then we are active in that space and we're doing that kind of work. Great to have you on, well, Simon. I really appreciate it. Simon Grainer there, the acting CEO of Outward Bound. Uh, Manu says, great idea for young people to do an Outward Bound style course, then you get your 5K. I did one plus the Duke of Edinburgh and voluntary service at home set me on a stimulating course through my teenage years. Uh, you were going to say, Nalini? Yeah, I was just going to say it will very much come down to what we call a national civic service program. You know, we need to define what it is and what purpose mm. it's going to serve. And we also need to understand what the result is going to be. What are we going to get? What what output? Once 5K um, into every person's account? If it can't be touched Not until you're 65, yes. Not yes. everyone. I mean, yes. am I getting a back pay? I'll do the course. If I get back pay, I'll do it. 26 past four, so the panel not quite sure about that. Um, a lot of supporters there on uh, on on the text here. Uh, a bit to this, I asked uh, whether or not you had your dream job. Is there such a thing? Uh, the Guardian asked, does the concept exist in reality? According to a new survey, fewer than a third of us think we are in our dream job. And for a growing number, that idea that it even exists is fading fast. But here we had a, a, quite a few. I'm a school counsellor and absolutely love it. 
uh, I, I have in the past had my dream job working as an actor. Sadly, it's very hard to make a living in that industry in New Zealand. So like most actors, I've had various other jobs. Another one here, I've been a journalist for 12 years, telling people stories and meeting interesting people. It's still my dream job, despite the resourcing pressure in our industry. And with us now is Hamish um, from Devonport. Kia ora, Hamish. Kia ora, how are you? Very well. Do you have a dream job? Well, people tell me when I'm doing travelling around the country, they say, I'd love to do what you do, so I must be pretty good, really, I suppose. You know, what, do you, what do you do? I'm an antique dealer, so I get to make it up as I go along. I just go around and deal and, um, putting, you know, basically it's better than a real job, we say. Um, so, like, I'm in Cavity next week, so you just throw an ad in the paper and people ring you up and you go and look at their stuff. Oh, that's perfect. Like that do, simple, of course. do you enjoy it, though? Oh, of course. I enjoy the, the travelling on the road and the getting back to people like your other person said, meeting people. You've got to like people, talking to people, getting their stories. And you've got to make a living out of it, of course. You know, yes. the best way to learn is to lose money, I find. <laughs> I mean, the test is that at the end of the day, are you looking at your watch? Are you? I just, I just saw a nice Rolex um, yesterday, <laughs> a vintage early 60s Rolex I bought last week. So, yeah, I'm always looking at watches. Wow. <laughs> to sell, of course. Early 60s Rolex. Oh, oh beautiful. Yeah, beyond my price range, but I wish. Oh, if I, uh, uh, what about you, uh, Nalini? Uh, here we have Hamish, uh, who's actually uh, from Walsh Antiques, uh, yes. Devonport. Uh, so Hamish has his dream job. It sounds fantastic. Nalini? I, I agree with Hamish. I think most people tell us. Oh, I know the number of times people tell me that they're in, I am in their dream job. Um, so I wonder whether it's actually something that when we look at others to say, oh, my God, that's my dream job. But then they do not find themselves in that dream job. Um, yeah. I think I'm in my dream job. I, um, I, I'm self-employed. I'm a farmer. Mm. I, I you know, work to my hours. I'm my own boss. But at the same time, I'm dependent on, on work from other places. I'm, season is always on my mind. I mean, it's never perfect. No. But the Can fact I... is I'm, I'm out there most of the time and I love being out there. Here's more. Uh, uh, Blair, says, Blair says, I'm a knife sharpener and Japanese knife purveyor. Oh. Dream job See? in Otipuri. But let me ask you, Hamish, did, yes. were, you, were you always in your dream job? Did it come to you late or were you in a no. job for many years that you went, oh, my gosh? No. I went to art school and I mucked around for my 20s when you could have forward to and then I basically just opened a shop called the Den of Antiquity in Christchurch and sink or swim in those days and you just either made a living or you went out of business and I just carried on and then ended up in Dunbar Sloan and invited me up to Auckland to work at Dunbar Sloan Auctions and I've been on my own for about oh, 20 years. Living the dream, yeah. Oh, Living the dream, eh? That is fantastic. It's, man. it's really about knowing your own self, isn't it? It's yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. Hamish, lovely to have you on the program. I'm Thank sure you. that you may well have inspired others oh, to go okay, into okay. antiquing. <laughs> not easy, though. There's no school for antiques. That's, <laughs> did you hear that, Ed? You yeah. can't just jump into it. You've got to know. Oh, he's, no. trying to, he's trying to co- close years. the market down. Years, he's I've trying to close it. 30 years. All right, very okay. good. Thanks, Hamish. Uh, uh, keep those coming. Wonderful responses. If you have a dream job, um, let us know what it is. Uh, here's one, another one. I've just started a job as a baker in a local grocery store. Start at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m., depending on whether the ovens uh, are on. I do four times 10-hour days from Sunday to, Sunday to Wednesday, uh, and I absolutely love it. Uh, we have the, the song Whisperer in a few minutes' time. Uh, guess the lyrics we play the song. Here they are. Every finger in the room is pointing at me. 
I want to spit in their faces, then I get afraid of what they could bring. I get a bowling ball in my stomach. I've got a desert in my mouth. What's the song? 